Welcome back to Imaginary Histories. This episode goes to some dark places and does discuss human sexuality. I just want to put that in there as a warning. There's nothing too explicit, but it might not be the best episode for our youngest listeners. This episode is also dedicated to my cousin Vanessa, who has been very patiently waiting for a new episode for quite a while. So I just want to say thank you. I appreciate it. On July 22, 1825, a large group of men marched through the streets of Boston, Massachusetts. Their faces were painted black, and they were armed, carrying axes, pitchforks, and poles. As they marched, they created a tremendous noise, banging conch shells and gourds, and even had a marching band bringing up the rear. These were truckmen, men paid to load and unload ship cargo on the busy docks of Boston and men who hauled goods around the city on horse carts. They were all headed towards one building, a brothel known as the Beehive. Boston, like all port cities, had a pleasure district that catered to sailors and other short-term visitors. The exact location varied over time, but it was always in the West End, around Ann Street, now named North Street, Broad Street, and South Axe Street, an area that was simply known as the Hill. If we could visit it today, we would probably find it to be the most interesting and entertaining part of Boston. The only place in town where one could find a mix of street entertainers, gamblers, ballad singers, and many places to drink and buy liquor. It's not a coincidence that South Axe Street in particular was a vibrant mix of high and low classes, as well as Irish and black residents. By the late 18th century, this would have been considered a normal working class neighborhood. But in the Boston of the 1820s, the hill was considered by respectable Bostonians to be a pit of depravity. The mayor of Boston, Josiah Quincy, said of the hill, quote, There are dances there almost every night. The whole street is in a blaze of light from their windows. To put them down without a military force seems impossible. A man's life would not be safe who should attempt it. The company consists of highbinders, jailbirds, known thieves and miscreants, with women of the worst description. Murders, it is well known, have been committed there, and more have been suspected." Unquote. If the mayor himself felt powerless to do anything, the Bostonian truckmen, along with some mechanics, laborers, and sailors, would take it on themselves to enforce propriety. Instead of attacking the women of the beehive or their patrons, the rioters attacked the building itself, literally tearing it apart brick by brick. As one witness, a police colonel, described it, they, quote, came down from Hanover Street, and the work began, and in less than ten minutes there was not a piece of door or window or furniture left of the beehive, so large as a truck pin, and such a stampede by the inmates of the hive. But the rioters weren't satisfied with one building. They spent the next several nights attacking other brothels on North Morgan, Prince, and Ann Streets. Boston, like most U.S. cities, had a relatively tiny police force that was mostly made up of volunteers that had no way to stop the rioters. Finally, Mayor Quincy hit on a solution. He paid the 40 truckmen who were already under contract to the city to act as emergency police. On the night of July 29th, after a week of disorder, the riots were stopped by these pseudo-deputies. 
The Beehive Riots seem strange to us now because they belong to a bygone era of American cities that was, even in 1825, coming to an end. After the War of 1812, the entire economy of Massachusetts changed. Larger coastal communities like Gloucester and New Bedford, that relied on their fishing and whaling, still exported their products through Boston just as they always had. But after 1812, small nearby towns and inland communities invested their capital into manufacturing and industry. Starting in 1814, when the first cotton factory in the U.S. opened in Waltham, Massachusetts. The combination of maritime trade and industrial development led to a boom for Boston's economy. But the growth of industry also led to large numbers of young unmarried men moving to the city from small towns around Massachusetts who had grown up on farms. They were looking for new opportunities and sometimes adventure. Young women came to Boston as well, as they were being displaced from their family farms and local villages. Their domestic skills were being rendered obsolete, leaving them with few ways to make money. At the same time that travel became easier and marriageable men were moving towards the city. Many of the young women who arrived in Boston looking for work or a husband or both found themselves in poor neighborhoods like the North End or the Hill. There was also a significant transient population that came first by ship and canal, and later by railroad and steamboat. Not to mention the migrants who came after 1840, mostly from Ireland and England. So the population of Boston boomed along with the economy, going from 18,000 residents in 1790 to 43,000 by 1820, an increase of 250% in 30 years. When Boston incorporated itself as a city on January 7, 1822, it was instantly the fourth largest city in the U.S. The old governing structure of the city, based on a close-knit group of about 40 elite families that essentially appointed themselves to various positions of power through the generations, was suddenly completely obsolete. The old families relinquished their grip on electoral power and retreated first into neighborhood enclaves like Fort Hill and Beacon Hill, and eventually out of the city entirely, into nearby towns like Brookline and Newton. But as they moved away from the urban core, they turned to charity and philanthropy as a way to maintain a level of prestige among their peers, while gaining approval from the lower classes. Endowing libraries was especially popular, as it also quote-unquote improved the lower classes through education. The merchant classes naturally wanted to emulate the elites, so they too joined in the culture of patronage, leading to Boston's numerous schools, colleges, universities, and educational societies. Even the religious landscape was transforming itself in the 1820s. The Second Great Awakening was sweeping across New England. The old Unitarian faith of the elite Bostonians was being supplanted by congregationalism in mass revival meetings that were held across the region. Most of those converted in the revival were young, between 12 and 20 years old, and female. And these converts had a passion for social causes. As these men and women arrived in Boston in the 1820s, they found themselves in a dense urban environment where the government was democratic, but too small to uphold the norms of decency and a Unitarian church utterly out of touch with its own congregants, one which, faced with an influx of the relatively poor into Boston, built separate chapels for them 
and instituted a condescending ministry to the poor rather than integrate them into congregational life on an equal basis. In contrast, the Congregationalists created new organizations and institutions to fulfill their missions of spreading the gospel and aiding those in need. By the 1820s, these had become benevolent societies, which connected regional and national networks of volunteers, colleges, seminaries, elite benefactors, clergy, and administrators. So, to recap, Boston in the 1820s combined a ballooning and unstable population with the new Bostonians mostly young and unmarried, a shift in political power away from the elites who had paternalistically imposed traditional norms and codes of conduct, and towards the people. Economic prosperity, resulting in great wealth, unevenly distributed, segregation of the rich and poor into separate physical spaces, and a paternalistic interest by the rich in improving the poor through charity, and a slowly receding wave of evangelical fervor, leaving in its wake a strengthened congregational church determined to grapple with the civic and social problems of its parishioners through organized benevolence. And as far as the church, the city government, and the middle to upper classes were concerned, the main problem in the city of Boston could be summed up in one word, vice. The concept of vice covered a wide range of antisocial activities, including prostitution, which was defined simply as having sex outside of marriage, adultery, drunkenness, obscenity, gambling, secular music, sexual deviancy, especially homosexuality, but also masturbation or the solitary vice, and crimes of all kinds. Boston Mayor Josiah Quincy was determined to deal with the urban problems of, quote, poverty, vice, and crime, which he described as little else than modifications of each other, and to that end, he claimed a large area of land in South Boston for use as the city lands, a prison, almshouse, and mental institutions, and appointed Boston's first city marshal, or police chief, in 1823. But along with spiritual fervor and social activism, the Second Great Awakening also brought to New England two other things, anti-Catholic prejudice and a new sexual repressiveness. The anti-Catholicism was part of what led to the Beehive Riots. In the 1820s, Protestant churches, Bible societies, missionary societies, and Sunday schools regularly denounced the blasphemy and idolatry of Romanism and popery through religious newspapers, sermons, lectures, and speeches. This was lumped in with vice and attributed to the Irish Catholic immigrants who happened to live in the hill. The new prudishness condemned any sexual behavior outside of marriage as morally hazardous and mentally damaging especially the solitary vice, and warned of the grave dangers of sexual excess in general, even within the confines of matrimony. It shouldn't be hard to see why a group of religiously devout young men who were taught to fear both sex and Catholics would attack a popular brothel in a neighborhood with a large Irish population. But that kind of urban disorder wouldn't be tolerated much longer, as cities like Boston seized greater control over their streets and other urban spaces, never to relinquish them again. If you're wondering why I've spent so much time focusing on Boston, it's because what happened there also happened in the other 19th century urban centers of the U.S. As the nation industrialized, the cities grew, and as they grew, so did the upper-class anxiety over vice. It was seen as a kind of degenerative disease, one that was both communicable and hereditary. City governments, churches, and the wealthy 
were determined to contain it, but it soon became clear that they weren't very good at it. Part of their failure came from their prudishness. Talking openly about vice was considered one way to spread it, so the enemies of vice would use euphemisms like circumstances instead of pregnancy and a solitary vice instead of masturbation, which rendered most of their public statements ineffective at best and at worst simply humorous. This would start to change in the 1830s, when a new generation of female societies demanded the right to speak openly about women's sexuality in public. Another problem was the nebulous nature of vice itself. Vice was obviously connected to poverty, but that was tangled up with notions about sin. It was common to speak of vice as a kind of degenerative disease, but sometimes it was communicable and sometimes it was hereditary. Dense populations of the poor concentrated in cities was such a new problem the authorities had no frame of reference for understanding it, much less solving it. Boston's solution was to purchase a large piece of land in the South Boston for an asylum, a prison, the House of Correction, a workhouse, the House of Industry. The poor and homeless were lumped together with addicts, the mentally ill, petty thieves, and hardened criminals in a system that was designed not for the rehabilitation or social support, but for sheer population control. The era of the citizens policing social norms themselves through violence like the Beehive Riots was clearly over. But the urban governments and other leaders were not yet equipped to deal with that policing work on their own. But a new group of highly driven, specialized professionals saw an opportunity and stepped into this gap, eager to aid the city authorities in their attempts to contain and control the spread of vice. This group was the Medical Doctors. In the middle of the 19th century, doctors had no credibility with the public as professionals or intellectuals. It wasn't until the 1840s that doctors even began to organize into a profession. But the American public was opposed to the power of the state being used to back the authority of these men. These doctors rarely agreed with one another about any theory of disease, much less the best practices for treatment and they were in constant competition with an entire field of self-taught practitioners, pseudoscientists, and outright quacks. But even those we might recognize today as respectable doctors believed the miasma theory, the idea that infections were caused by bad odors rather than bacteria, which was still barely understood. Many doctors still prescribed to the ancient theory of bodily humors, various bodily fluids that needed to be kept in balance to maintain physical health. Fake medicines and cures were common. A substance called Revalenta Arabica was successfully marketed as a cure-all, but it was actually just lentil flour sold at a high markup. The public got their medical information from a variety of sources, including popular lectures on physiology, home health manuals, passed down family wisdom, local customs, pornography, and the elaborate roadshows that traveling medicine men would stage to sell their various tinctures, salves, and elixirs. Faced with a lack of definitive knowledge, patients in the mid-19th century would choose to patronize those healers who reflected their own pre-existing beliefs about health, which created a marketplace that in turn catered to usually maintaining those beliefs rather than trying to change or update them. Occasionally, some new medical idea or theory would catch the public imagination and essentially become a trend. This was the case with Sylvester Graham, inventor of the Graham Cracker, who became widely known in the 1830s for his 
Lecture to Young Men on Chastity, where he advised his male audience to severely restrain their appetites for food and sex, as indulgence led to overstimulation, which was, according to Graham, the source of all human disease. This was a challenge to the prevailing idea that male bodies needed to ejaculate regularly to stay healthy, since any retained semen would turn toxic and not only cause disease but lead inevitably to vice and even madness. Graham's anti-sex attitude became mainstream. By 1860, it was widely accepted in American popular culture that masturbation caused physical and mental illness in men and women alike. But the practice of modern medicine began to come together as doctors, physiologists, and biologists pieced together more and more information about how the human body actually worked. The discoveries of Louis Pasteur and others about microorganisms paved the way for a true understanding of infection, which in turn led to the development of antiseptic medicine and sterilized instruments. The 1880s saw the beginning of a medical practice based on science and research, leading to discoveries like the source of tuberculosis and the first vaccines. This led to greater support from educational institutions, wealthy private patrons, and eventually the state itself, especially in Germany, which had a long tradition of public health initiatives backed by the power of the state, and the United States, which had created the Hospital Corps in 1886, partially as a response to the carnage of the U.S. Civil War. In America, modern medicine essentially began in earnest with the founding of the Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland in 1889, with an endowment by the rich businessman and philanthropist John Hopkins of $7 million, the equivalent of about $135 million today. But this new era of empiricism and science didn't replace older ideas about vice and degeneracy, which were still tied up with theology, class warfare, and social norms. Instead, modern science and traditional morality crashed into each other and became hopelessly entangled. To understand how and why, we have to look at how the medical profession dealt with problems of the mind. In the mid-19th century, psychology, psychiatry, and physiology blurred together to create a category of illness known as moral insanity. Up to this point, a sane person was someone whose reason was in control of their various mental faculties, especially their bodily appetites and desires. In order for someone to be considered insane, their reason had to be impaired, which meant that they could be deranged intellectually, but also morally, since that too was governed by reason. As a result, the 19th century is full of cases documented as madness, where the patient seems mentally fit, but exhibits behavior that was morally offensive, sinful, or vicious. The English psychiatrist and anthropologist James Pritchard created the term moral insanity to describe this condition in 1835. And he emphasized the morally insane patient's outward appearance of mental stability, together with their actual perversion and lack of self-control. Pritchard's formulation was widely accepted. The early psychologists formed a kind of transatlantic scientific network, constantly sharing information through various publications and professional associations. And in a short time, doctors throughout Europe and North America were diagnosing and treating cases of moral insanity on a regular basis. This led to a kind of medicalization of morality itself. As the pioneering British psychiatrist 
Henry Maudsley put it in 1898, quote, the most decided forms of human wrongdoing and the causes and nature of the moral degeneracy they evince are not merely subjects for the moral philosopher and preacher, but they rightly come within the scope of positive scientific research, unquote. This hybrid medical-moral approach to vice also had the convenient effect of bridging the science of medicine with the theology of the church, and religious authorities, too, began to speak of degeneracy and vice in terms that now sounded medical. Corrupt souls came to be viewed as suffering from a moral pathology that was a form of disease or degeneration. When the early doctors saw the newly urbanizing cities attempting to grapple with controlling their populations in order to contain the spread of vice, they were able to offer a rational, scientific approach to solving this problem, based in modern medicine. The urban poor could be grouped into categories, those that were fit and those that were unfit, due to their moral insanity. The unfit could be separated out from the population at large and placed into institutions like asylums. This both quarantined their vice away from the general population and allowed the unfit to be more easily examined and studied by the doctors. The cities were eager to lend their political and financial support to this approach, as it seemed more humane than the houses of industry or correction, as well as appearing to be more effective. It also allowed those political and financial authorities to ignore the economic inequalities and racial discrimination at the heart of the existing system. As a result of this governmental support and collaboration, the power and prestige of the medical field began to grow, which in turn contributed to its professionalization. Once the doctors and psychologists attained the status of experts with specialized knowledge, the general discourse of vice changed to suit them. By the late 19th century, the main problem was now thought to be what was termed as degeneracy, and the new medical and mental experts saw themselves as the vanguard in the fight against it. But what was degeneracy exactly? As the discourse became medicalized, the concept of degeneracy began to lose its original connotation with sin altogether. But if degeneracy was something that could be understood completely through science, it must be something that could be defined and understood through research and observation. It was at that point, at the end of the 19th century, that the doctors and psychologists would turn for answers to yet another field of science entirely, known as physical anthropology. To understand the roots of physical anthropology, we have to go back to the early days of science itself. In 1735, the legendary Swedish botanist and biologist Carl Linnaeus published his most popular work, Systema Naturae. Linnaeus was a brilliant taxonomist who laid the foundation for all later scientific classification, and he claimed that there were four distinct varieties of human beings based on their skin coloration. Homo europaeus albicens, whitish European man, Homo americanus rubicens, reddish American man, Homo asiaticus fuscus, tawny Asian man, and Homo africanus nigriculus, blackish African man. Linnaeus intentionally kept these types vague, as he intended them simply to describe the different appearances of humans on separate continents as a kind of mapping exercise. He didn't intend to create stable constant categories, much less as separate species or races. 
As Linnaeus wrote in 1737, quote, God created one man only, dictates scripture to us, yet if the slightest difference was enough, they would easily stick out thousands of different species of man. They displayed namely white, red, black, and gray hair, white, rosy, tawny, and black faces, straight, stubby, crooked, flattened, and aquiline noses. Among them we find giants and pygmies, fat and skinny people, erect, humpy, brittle, and lame people, etc., etc. But who, with the same mind, would be so frivolous as to call these distinct species? Unquote. But despite Linnaeus's intentions, his readers repurposed his vague types into categories of human beings separated by essential differences. As anthropology began to form as an independent field of study, the most significant dispute in the field was between monogenism, the belief that all humans descended from the Adam of the book of Genesis, and polygenism, the belief that the human species consists of distinct races that arose from different origins and different times. The great French scientist Georges Cuvier, who essentially founded the entire field of paleontology, somewhere in the middle. But his formulation would be influential on generations of scientists. He posited that there were three races of mankind, which he termed the Caucasian, the Mongolian, and the Ethiopian. According to Cuvier, Adam and Eve were Caucasian, and thus this was the original race of mankind. The other two races were created by survivors of a major catastrophe that struck the earth 5,000 years previous. Those survivors fled in different directions and then developed in isolation from each other. Unlike Linnaeus, Cuvier believed these were essentially different species of human beings. And also, unlike Linnaeus, he believed that the Caucasian race was innately superior to the other two. Based on criteria like the advancement of European civilization and, strange as it sounds, the shape of their skulls. Supposed variations in skull size was a crucial data point for physical anthropologists. The German physician Johann Friedrich Blumenbach, one of the founders of the field, had a massive collection of human skulls, which he used to argue that humans were composed of five races. In 1798, Georges Cuvier wrote that, quote, the white race, with oval face, straight hair and nose, to which the civilized people of Europe belong, and which appear to us the most beautiful of all, is also superior to others by its genius, courage, and activity, unquote. Well, by contrast, the Ethiopian or Negro race had, quote, always remained in the most complete state of barbarism, unquote. It's worth noting here that when Cuvier wrote this, apart from slave traders and missionaries, most Europeans knew essentially nothing about Africa or the people that lived there. Cuvier's three-race taxonomy was simplified by German historian and philosopher Christoph Miners into two races with separate origins, which he labeled the, quote, beautiful white race and the, quote, ugly black race. According to miners, whites were not only more noble and intelligent, they were naturally more physically delicate and emotional. By contrast, the black race literally felt less pain due to their thicker nerves, and this also made them unemotional. As absurd as this sounds, this latter point would prove to be extremely influential. The point is that by the 1840s, anthropology took it as a given that the human race was not only subdivided into various races, but these races existed on a hierarchy, with Northern European whites always at the top, and importantly, the farther down the hierarchy a race was, the more it was prone to vice. And there was no upward mobility on this hierarchy. One could only descend. 
Another way to say this is that was termed miscegenation, that is a child with one parent higher than another on this racial hierarchy always led to that child being considered lower on the hierarchy. This then was the physical anthropologist's definition of degeneracy, a decrease in one's natural levels of reasoning and character. Like medicine and psychology, physical anthropology was coalescing into a distinct scientific field in the 1850s. In America, it came to the fore in the 1830s and 40s because the split between monogenism and polygenism was part of the national debate over the institution of slavery. Abolitionists took the monogenist position, since if all humans had common ancestry, they all deserved equal rights as humans, while those who were in favor of slavery were polygenists, because that position allowed them to justify racial discrimination and oppression using the discourse of science. One prominent polygenist was the great geologist and biologist Louis Agassi. Agassi was a staunch creationist who believed that God had created one human species that then became distinct over time through differences in their environments. Agassi's religious faith led him to declare that these various races should be treated as equals. But despite his own intentions, racist American scientists like the influential Samuel George Morton were more than happy to use Agassi's stature to argue in favor of chattel slavery. Slavery couldn't be inhuman, they argued, if those being enslaved were not fully human. But what Agassi and his contemporaries didn't know was that the entire discourse of science was about to change. In 1859, the first edition of Charles Darwin's book, The Origin of Species, was published. According to Darwin, all life on Earth resulted from gradual changes in biological organisms over long periods of time, driven by a process he called natural selection. It came to be known as the theory of evolution, and it revolutionized science. Like the physical anthropologists before him, Darwin agreed that heredity and inheritance were central to understanding biology. But Darwin was not merely a monogenist. The Origin of Species and his 1871 book, The Descent of Man, made it clear that race, from a biological standpoint, was mostly an empty concept. Physical characteristics that had been used by race scientists to categorize humanity into essentially distinct subgroups were shown by Darwin and his followers to reflect only minor variations within Homo sapiens. The races, Darwin wrote, ought not to be ranked as species. They graduate into each other, and it is hardly possible to discover clear distinctive characters between them. The implication was that humans who defined themselves as white could not claim any special status or privileges. But evolutionary theory went even further in dismantling physical anthropology. If evolution was real, Homo sapiens was not a unique type of being chosen by a divine creator to rule over the other species. Instead, Homo sapiens was merely one species of primate among other primates, which in turn were one form of life among all the other life forms on Earth all of which were subject to the pressures of natural selection to adapt or go extinct. Darwin's work was obviously controversial, in part because some of the mechanisms by which evolution happened remained unclear. But the question of how evolution happened was mostly answered when the work of Gregor Mendel was rediscovered in the year 1900. Gregor Mendel was an Austrian monk whose experiments with pea plants led him to discover the basic principles of inheritance through genes. Mendel died in 1884, 
with his breakthrough work remaining misunderstood or outright ignored, until other scientists rediscovered it and replaced his original experiments. The combination of Mendelian genetics and Darwinian evolution was a new paradigm for biology and its related sciences. The field of anthropology had already been undergoing a transformation from within due to the work of American anthropologist Franz Boas. Boas was born in Germany in 1858. He was a brilliant student who received a doctorate in physics at the age of 23. In 1881, Boas came to North America to study the indigenous people of the Pacific Northwest. A few years later, he emigrated to the United States, and in 1899, Boas was given a position as professor of anthropology at Columbia University in New York City, where he would teach for the rest of his life. Boas questioned the race science at the heart of physical anthropology, and he produced several studies showing that the differences in skull size and skeletal formation that supposedly demarcated the racial hierarchy instead reflected variations in diet, nutrition, and health. In a short time, Boas and his students came to reject entirely the model of racial hierarchy that had dominated the field, and American anthropology was essentially rebooted from the ground up. By the end of the 19th century, American anthropology was focused on the study of culture and its various forms, which intersected with other fields like linguistics and history. But right at the moment that anthropology was rejecting the concept of a biologically based racial hierarchy, another scientific discipline embraced that concept, the medical field. And the person responsible was the half-cousin of Charles Darwin, a man named Francis Galton. Francis Galton was unquestionably a scientific genius. He was born in Birmingham, England in 1822 and quickly became known as a child prodigy, learning to read by age two and quoting Shakespeare by age six. But by his teens, Galton's quick mind found itself chafing under the conservative social and cultural climate of Victorian England and the high expectations of his accomplished family. When he dropped out of a prestigious school from sheer boredom at the age of 16, Galton's family expected him to then go to medical school and become a doctor. But he found that his inquisitive mind became restless and even unstable without some form of new input and stimulation. Not to mention that he was put off by the screams of the unesthetized medical patients. So he began to travel. He traveled extensively through southeastern Europe, then finally returned to attend Trinity College at Cambridge. But as he feared, his mind turned on itself and he had a nervous breakdown in his third year. He briefly returned to finish his studies, but shortly afterwards, Galton's father died, leaving him a large inheritance. Now 22 years old, Galton found himself independently wealthy. He immediately set out on a long journey through Palestine, Egypt, and eventually into West Africa. He traveled so extensively that at the early age of 31, he was elected a fellow of the Royal Geographic Society. Galton now had a reputation as an explorer and cartographer. He was also obsessed with numbers and counting. His personal motto was, whenever you can, count, which led him to make great advances in statistics, where he invented concepts like the median and standard deviation. This in turn led him to advances and in inventions in several other fields, including meteorology, where he created the first weather map, forensics, where he separated fingerprints into six major types 
that could be used to identify criminals. Perception, where he invented the Galton whistle to test hearing, which became the first dog whistle. Psychology, where he pioneered the use of questionnaires to gather data on large numbers of subjects, and various others, including a study on how to make the perfect cup of tea. But Galton would leave his largest mark in a field that he created and named himself, eugenics. When Galton's cousin Darwin published The Origin of Species in 1859, it changed Galton's life. He was obsessed with the book, especially the section that dealt with the breeding of animals. Darwin had only hinted at using his theories to study variations in Homo sapiens, but Galton was determined to unlock the secrets of human heredity by analyzing traits like height, fingerprints, facial features, and, crucially, mental characteristics like intelligence, which Galton assumed was inherited. It seems likely that Galton wanted to do this in order to better understand himself and the nature of his own genius. At any event, since Gregor Mendel's research was still unknown, Galton had to rely on gathering large amounts of data from a wide range of subjects, a project well suited to his innovative statistical techniques and questionnaires. Using a technique he called historiometry, Galton analyzed numerous biographies of prominent men, judges, statesmen, scholars, premiers, scientists, military commanders, writers, and artists. He then quantified and converted into tables and charts this data. He also looked closely at the families of these men to see if they too had eminent relatives and if so, where their rise to eminence began. Overall, he analyzed 300 families and about 1,000 individuals in total. He found that the eminence dropped off a bit for each preceding generation and for the distance from the person in question, so that cousins were less eminent than brothers, for example. This pattern confirmed for Galton that genius was an inherited trait, and he published his findings in 1869 in a book titled Hereditary Genius. To say that this book doesn't withstand modern scrutiny is putting it mildly. And despite the influence of Darwin, Galton recreated the old racial hierarchy by suggesting that the Negro race was two levels of intelligence below the Anglo-Saxon race. But what made hereditary genius a landmark work was Galton's suggestion that humans could use the inheritance of genius to actively direct the course of our own evolution. Quote, I propose to show in this book that a man's natural abilities are derived by inheritance under exactly the same limitations as are the form and physical features of the whole organic world. Consequently, as it is easy, notwithstanding those limitations, to obtain by careful selection a permanent breed of dogs or horses gifted with peculiar powers of running or of doing anything else, so it would be quite practicable to produce a highly gifted race of men by judicious marriages during several consecutive generations. I shall show that social agencies of an ordinary character, whose influences are little suspected, are at this moment working towards the degradation of human nature, and that others are working towards its improvement. I conclude that each generation has enormous power over the natural gifts of those that follow, and maintain that it is a duty we owe to humanity to investigate the range of that power, and to exercise it in a way that, without being unwise towards ourselves, shall be most advantageous to future inhabitants of the earth." Unquote. More than that, Galton suggested that it would be necessary for the more advanced races like the Anglo-Saxons to consciously evolve in order to adapt to their own civilization, otherwise they would be in danger of dying out. 
Galton was especially worried that white families were delaying marriage to later and later ages and thus having fewer children. The effect of this, he wrote, quote, would be such as to cause the race of the prudent, those having fewer children, to fall, after a few centuries, into an almost incredible inferiority of numbers to that of the imprudent. And it is therefore calculated to bring utter ruin upon the breed of any country the doctrine prevailed. I protest against the abler races being encouraged to withdraw in this way from the struggle for existence. The mainstream monstrance that the weak should be crowded out by the strong. But it is still more monstrous that the races best fitted to play their part on the stage of life should be crowded out by the incompetent, the ailing, and the desponding. Unquote. This rhetoric is still used by white nationalists and neo-Nazis in the 21st century who talk about the so-called great replacement of whites by non-whites. At any event, Galton's contemporaries were skeptical, which isn't surprising considering how often hereditary genius scrambles together complex mathematics and statistics with blanket assumptions and wild guesses. But Charles Darwin, at least, was impressed. And in his book, The Descent of Man, he wrote, quote, We now know, through the admirable labors of Mr. Galton, that genius tends to be inherited. Unquote. And Galton was just getting started. Wanting to elaborate further on some of his ideas, Galton published a book in 1883 titled Inquiries into Human Faculty and Its Development, where he invented the term eugenics to describe the active improvement of humanity through selective breeding. He also recognized that his existing data set was too small to be definitive. So in 1884, he set up what he called an anthropometric laboratory in London. Golden had achieved a level of renown mostly through his travel writings, and thousands of Londoners visited the lab to pay a fee and be measured, including Prime Minister William Gladstone. The lab was a 36-foot by 6-foot gallery with a see-through lattice around it. He and his assistants would take the subjects through the various testing stations in pairs, in the hope that one of the pairs would be confident enough to take the tests, which would in turn encourage the other member of the pair to be measured as well. Each pair took about 14 minutes in the lab, where Galton measured their weight, height, pulling strength, color perception, and reaction time. But not their head size, since he found that women took too long for his liking to remove their bonnets first and fix their hair afterwards. Taking the height data from 205 pairs of parents and 928 of their adult children, Galton plotted the results on a graph, drawing each measurement as a single point. He then drew a line through the points and measured the slope of that line. Since the slope of that line was two-thirds, that meant that exceptionally short or tall parents had children that were on average only two-thirds as exceptionally short or tall as they were. Children were clearly less exceptional than their parents. This fit with Galton's earlier results regarding eminence and hereditary genius. Galton named this tendency regression toward mediocrity, which we now call regression to the mean. And it would eventually, over the course of the next two decades, become one of the foundations of modern empirical science. It didn't shed any special light on human heredity, as Galton eventually realized, but it did show that human characteristics could be measured and those measurements adhered to regular mathematical patterns. Galton published his most influential book in 1889, titled Natural Inheritance, by which time he had a reputation as a pioneer in the hot new field of eugenics, which only grew in, in prominence with the rediscovery of Mendelian genetics in 1900. 
Galton's own health had begun to fail in the early 20th century. He suffered from deafness and asthma, the latter of which he tried to treat with hashish. But he was heartened by the international interest in his work. In 1904, he gave a major address on eugenics, where he said, quote, The improvement of our stock seems to me one of the highest objects that we can reasonably attempt. We are ignorant of the ultimate destinies of humanity, but feel perfectly sure that it is as noble a work to raise its level as it would be disgraceful to abase it. What nature does blindly, slowly, and ruthlessly, man may do providently, quickly, and kindly. Unquote. Galton died in 1912 at the age of 88. Strangely enough, even though he was married for 43 years and he was obsessed with the nature of human inheritance, Galton left behind no children. Francis Galton's theories about eugenics were particularly popular in the transatlantic community of physiologists and physicians that existed in Germany, Austria, the UK, and the US. This community had adopted its first code of medical ethics in 1847, adapted from the work of English author and physician Thomas Percival. This code of ethics coined the term medical ethics to describe a set of rules intended to guide how doctors interacted with their patients. But these rules were designed to protect the doctor's reputations and careers. They were definitely not intended to give any autonomy to the patients at the expense of the doctors. It was another large step towards making medicine a respectable modern profession. The amateurs and quacks had been methodically weeded out of the field, and an entire infrastructure of medical schools, hospitals, asylums, and research institutions was built to create the apparatus of modern medicine. But in the process, the doctors became a class of technical experts whose special knowledge made them unassailable by the public, the press, and government officials. Their ethics was a way for them to police each other's behavior, but it also meant that there was no public oversight of their work. And since their ethics codes were created within a culture of scientific racism, doctors could engage in cruel, inhumane behavior and remain within the ethical guidelines. Two years before the 1847 Code on Ethics was adopted by the American Medical Association, James Marion Sims began performing surgical experiments on 12 enslaved African women to treat their vaginal problems. These surgeries were done without anesthesia, which had only recently come into use. Even after it became available, Sims refused to use it, in part because he, like many white doctors, believed that blacks felt less pain than whites, an old racist idea borrowed from physical anthropology. The enslaved women were forced to hold each other down so that Sims could conduct his torturous experiments on them. Sims' other victims were enslaved children who had contracted neonatal tetanus, a kind of tetanus that sometimes occurs in newborns, usually when their umbilical cords are cut with an unsterilized instrument or if their nutrition is lacking. Sims was convinced that neonatal tetanus resulted from protracted births which moved around the newborn's skulls. To test his theory, Sims used a shoemaker's awl to pierce the heads of the babies and force the skull bones into alignment. After the children died, and they always died, he would perform autopsies on their corpses so he could conduct further research. He blamed his 100% fatality rate not on his surgeries, but instead on, quote, the sloth and ignorance of their mothers and the black midwives who attended them, unquote. In 
Sims is now considered the father of modern gynecology by the medical profession. And he was not alone in using the bodies of enslaved Africans and their children and descendants as unwilling experimental subjects, something we'll return to later. Over in Germany, this brutal racism found a comfortable home in the new science of eugenics, thanks in large part to a doctor named Alfred Pletz. Pletz was born in Germany in 1860. In his 20s, while he was in college in Breslau, he joined a group of students devoted to the new biological and scientific theories of Charles Darwin and Ernest Haeckel. They called themselves the Freie Wissenschaftliche Vereinigung, the Free Scientific Union. And along with Darwin and Haeckel, they were also fascinated with socialism and the new field of eugenics. The Free Scientific Union renamed themselves the Pacific Association, and they drew up plans for establishing a white German colony on an island in the Pacific. The colony would be a community on a friendly, socialistic, and maybe also pan-Germanic basis. Before they could follow through with their plan, Germany began persecuting and jailing socialists, so Pletz was forced to flee to Zurich. While there, he took up the study of medicine, eventually becoming a doctor in 1890 at the age of 30. While Galton was receiving accolades for his eugenic ideas in Britain, Pletz was quietly reshaping the future of eugenics with his 1895 book, The Efficiency of Our Race and Protection of the Weak. Where Francis Galton had wanted governments and nations to encourage the best families to have more children, Alfred Pletz emphasized the importance of preventing so-called degenerates from breeding. Marriages and children should only be allowed by society and the state, while for the sake of the nation, the sick, the weak, the disabled, twins, and those whose parents were too old or too young should be, in Pletz's words, eliminated. Alfred Pletz's ideas were the logical endpoint of Francis Galton's eugenics. But where Galton was content to rhapsodize about a better world through elites having large families, Pletz's racist eugenics was how Galton's ideas were put into practice. Galton was a theorist, but his contemporaries were eager to make eugenics an applied science. 1895 was also the year that Pletz created the term Rassenhygien, race hygiene, to describe his approach. It was a term that would stick, and he found that the German-British-American science axis was a receptive audience. On June 22, 1905, Pletz founded the German Society for Racial Hygiene, with only 31 members, but two years later it had grown to the point where it renamed itself the International Society for Racial Hygiene. Its goal, according to Pletz, was, quote, for society to return to a healthy and blooming, strong and beautiful life. The society received strong support from the German imperial government, and their ideas began to take root elsewhere, as similar societies formed in the United States, Sweden, the Netherlands, and of course, Britain. Part of what made eugenics so popular among the intelligentsia was that aspects of eugenics appealed to both the socialist left and the reactionary right. The left saw selective breeding, including sterilization, as essentially technical, relatively humane, effective approaches to eradicating the problems of overpopulation, poverty, and scarcity, which, once eliminated, would lead to a better world for everyone. H.G. Wells, for example, declared, It is in the sterilization of failures and not in the selection of successes for breeding that the possibility of an improvement of the human stock lies. 
Influential figures like John Maynard Keynes and George Bernard Shaw agreed. It helped to make eugenics widely accepted. On the right, eugenics was supported for its perceived effect of weeding out the unfit and the undeserving, like one would disinfect a wound, leading to better health for the body of the nation, a metaphor that was taken literally. Formidable scientific and medical institutions now lined up behind eugenics in the United States. It was out of these concerns that the American Breeders Association was established in 1903. It had about 1,000 members, a mix of agricultural breeders and professional scientists. It was one of the first organizations in the U.S. to lobby for wider political and financial support for eugenics. One year later, the zoologist and eugenicist Charles Davenport was named the director of the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory in Long Island, New York. Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory had been instituted in 1890 as a summer educational program for local teachers. When Davenport joined in 1904, he used his social connections to super-wealthy elite New Yorkers like the Rockefellers and the Harrimans, as well as his links to the Carnegie Institution of Washington, to bring in large amounts of financial and social support. Davenport also convinced John Harvey Kellogg to provide funds for the creation of the Race Betterment Foundation in Battle Creek, Michigan which was devoted to lobbying against foreign immigration and to, quote, save the mental soundness of the race. In 1910, Davenport convinced the Carnegie Institution to fund his own institute, the Eugenics Record Office, at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. Davenport worked in conjunction with his wife Gertrude, a prominent embryologist and geneticist in her own right. They employed several women, many of whom had degrees in biology, to travel door-to-door asking people to fill out questionnaires. These questionnaires gathered the same kinds of physical and mental data that Francis Galton had been looking for, but with this large pool of data at its disposal, the Eugenics Record Office would become the Central Institute for American Eugenics Research for the next 30 years, working especially closely with the Race Betterment Foundation. As various eugenics organizations sprang up across Germany, the U.S., and then the world, they worked together to create a thriving network of eugenics research and policy lobbying. The groundwork for this network had been laid decades earlier by the formation of the medical profession itself. On March 9, 1907, Indiana was the first state to approve a law that allowed doctors to involuntarily sterilize their patients. They called it, quote, an act to prevent procreation of confirmed criminals, idiots, imbeciles, and rapists. Washington and California followed with their own such laws in 1909. By 1910, the principles of eugenics had become so widely accepted by doctors and physicians that eugenics was medicine, and medicine was eugenics. The groups shared members, mailing lists, journals, conferences, funding sources, even office spaces. The first international eugenics conference was held in London in late July 1912, presided over by Major Leonard Darwin, the son of Charles Darwin. Hundreds of delegates, including prominent judges, ambassadors, and even Winston Churchill, along with several hundred visitors, gathered in the Hotel Cecil to hear talks and see exhibits promoting compulsory sterilization of the unfit. The American exhibit was sponsored by the American Breeders Association. Out of this conference was formed the International Federation of Eugenics Organizations. The Race Betterment Foundation held its own national eugenics conferences in the United States in 1914 and 1915. Eugenics was always meant to be an applied science, and the medical field was eager to apply it to the general population. 
There was deep financial support from wealthy families and their foundations, and there was institutional support from the health professionals, hospitals, asylums, universities, and research institutes. However, the eugenicists still needed widespread public awareness and support for their initiatives, as well as the backing of politicians and the state if they were going to be able to construct an apparatus to carry out their eugenicist goals. But these missing pieces were already starting to fall into place. Between 1870 and 1900, 12 million immigrants settled in the United States. It was the largest influx of immigrants in U.S. history to that point. They were mostly from Germany, England, Ireland, Scandinavia, and China, the latter of whom had already been coming in large numbers to work on massive railroad projects in the western U.S. 70% of these 12 million immigrants came through New York City, and if they didn't settle there, they usually traveled to other urban centers like Chicago or Philadelphia to look for work. These new arrivals were treated badly and discriminated against by the public and private sectors, which in turn kept them in a state of economic insecurity at best and hunger and poverty at worst. They were thus stereotyped as dirty, lazy, and stupid, which encouraged discrimination against them, forming a feedback loop of bigotry. Elite white Americans were deeply worried that their higher quality bloodlines would be diluted and eventually erased completely by the sheer numbers of these physically diseased and inferior specimens, especially those from Italy, Greece, Spain, or Central Europe. It was the old anxiety about vice and degeneracy as a moral and physical contagion newly mapped onto an entire population who were considered strange outsiders. It was all validated by the discourse of science and medicine, and it's a pattern that still repeats to this day. One of the results of the immigration wave was a newfound concern with public health in the Anglo-German world. Germany had a long history of public health measures created by the state and enforced by what were termed medical police, physicians who had extraordinary authority and power to enact whatever measures they deemed necessary for the sake of public health. This tradition, which had gone dormant, now stirred back to life. In 1911, a wealthy German businessman and philanthropist named Karl August Lingner organized the first international hygiene exhibition in Dresden. Lingner had made a fortune selling the first antiseptic mouthwash, and he was an enthusiastic proponent of educating the general public about bacteria, disease, and health. On May 6, 1911, the exhibition opened, utilizing 100 buildings built especially for the event. More than 5 million visitors toured through exhibits from 30 countries. Similar public health expos, all just as popular, would be held around the world at this time. The United States created their own version of medical police called the Public Health Service in 1870. The Public Health Service was a reorganized version of the U.S. Navy's Marine Hospital Service, and they maintained a military structure, with the medical officers wearing uniforms and given titles and pay that corresponded to ranks in the Army and Navy. The public health service officers, called surgeons, were a kind of tactical health squad for use by the government, and they were given broad powers of inspection and quarantine in order to prevent or contain possible epidemics of diseases like smallpox, yellow fever, polio, and bubonic plague. They were also tasked with the medical inspection of immigrants. The Immigration Act of 1891 required all immigrants entering the U.S., to be examined by officers of the Public Health Service. To do this, 
the U.S. constructed a huge facility on Ellis Island in New York Harbor to examine and evaluate the numerous immigrants arriving every day. The Ellis Island Immigrant Station opened on January 1, 1892. By law, they had to turn away criminals as well as, quote, all idiots, insane persons, paupers, or persons likely to become public charges, persons suffering from a loathsome or dangerous contagious disease. The term idiot here refers to someone who is mentally impaired. Mental and psychological factors quickly became an important criteria in evaluating the fitness of all potential immigrants to the U.S. Because the immigration wave also coincided with the rise of a new kind of instrument that psychologists were using to categorize individuals, the intelligence test. It was based on the work of French psychologist Alfred Binet. When universal mandatory education for children was introduced in France at the end of the 19th century, Binet was tasked with identifying which children might have learning disabilities so they could be put into a special education program. He and his student Theodore Simon developed a series of 30 questions or problems that would determine this. It wasn't a measurement of absolute intelligence, since Binet and Simon found there was no baseline for such an abstract concept as intelligence. Instead, they compared the test results between peers to determine what an average level of aptitude was and who tested below that average. The tasks in the test ranged from repeating numbers or phrases back to the questioner to finding three rhymes to a given word and repeating back seven random digits. They tested 50 children that were identified as average by their teachers, so they had a control group. Their test became known as the Binet-Simon scale. It was never widely adopted in France itself, possibly because Alfred Binet was so vocal and insistent about the scale's limitation. But after it was published in 1905, a copy was procured by an American psychologist named Henry Goddard. Goddard was the director of research at the Vineland Training School for Feeble-Minded Girls and Boys in Vineland, New Jersey. Goddard founded the Psychological Research Laboratory at the Vineland School in 1906. It was one of the earliest scientific institutions studying mental illness and cognitive handicaps. Goddard translated the Binet-Simon scale from French into English, so he could use it to assess his own subjects and students. Where Alfred Binet had used his scale to assign an individual a mental age, based on how far they could get through his 30 tasks, Goddard instead borrowed the new concept of an intelligence quotient, a single number that supposedly described an individual's mental aptitude. At a meeting of the American Association for the Study of the Feeble-Minded in 1910, Goddard presented a new classification system. For those with an IQ of 51 to 70, Goddard coined the term moron, which he took from the Greek term muros, meaning dull. A person with an IQ of 26 to 50 was an imbecile, from the Latin imbecilis or weak-minded. And a person with an IQ of 0 to 25 was an idiot, from the Greek and Latin for ignorant. Goddard argued that these various groups, including the morons, were a drag on the rest of society. Like most eugenicists of his time, Goddard thought that involuntary sterilization was the best way to eliminate the unfit from society. But since the general public was unlikely to support such tactics, the unfit should be institutionalized on a large scale. Goddard's ideas entered the mainstream in 1912. That year, he published a book titled The Kalakak Family, a study in the heredity of feeble-mindedness. The Kalakak family told the story of the genealogy of a woman from the Vineland School named Emma Wolverton. Goddard changed her name in the book to Deborah Kalakak. 
Goddard traced Deborah Kalakak's family tree back to her great-great-great-grandfather, Martin Kalakak, who was known for being morally upstanding, brave, and intelligent. According to Goddard, this man had had an affair with and impregnated a feeble-minded barmaid. This child, which he names Martin Kalakak Jr., fathered several descendants, all of whom were intellectually disabled, poor, mentally ill, criminals, or all of the above. But Martin Kalakak Sr. had also married a respectable woman and had a large family with his wife, all of whom were mentally normal to bright and overall good citizens. Using detailed genealogical charts and Mendelian graphs, Goddard demonstrated that the feeble-minded were essentially polluting the gene pool. It was the feeble-minded who were creating poverty and crime through their inferior heredity. Therefore, to eliminate these social problems, society had to eliminate the ability of the feeble-minded to pass on their genes. The Kalakak family was a huge success, and Goddard became a national, recognized expert in heredity and intelligence almost overnight. The problem was that the entire premise of the Kalakak family was based on a lie. In the actual family that Goddard based his research on, the affair and pregnancy of the feeble-minded barmaid never occurred. The Martin Kalakak Jr. of the Kalakak family was in reality the legitimate son of a married couple, and he went on to have a prosperous career as did many of his descendants. The idea that poverty, criminality, and ignorance were hereditary traits was pure fiction. But it appealed to the elite families of the U.S., they had used their wealth and influence to perpetuate their own high status for so many generations, they readily believed that they were genetically superior to those worse off than them, as if it had always been their birthright and their destiny to rule and control the masses. Interest in intelligence testing sharply increased. The New York Bureau of Industries and Immigration, the first immigrant social welfare program in the U.S., was funded by the Harriman family who installed eugenicist Marion Clark in 1913 as chief investigator. She believed that restriction to the U.S. should be severely cut back, and she sought out mostly Jewish and Italian immigrants in New York and other cities in order to evaluate them, deport them, incarcerate them, or get them involuntarily sterilized. Efforts like hers gained a new weapon when a new version of the Binet-Simon scale, as adapted by Goddard, was introduced by Stanford University psychologist Louis Terman in 1916. Terman had studied gifted and exceptionally talented children and came to the conclusion, like Goddard, that intelligence was mostly a hereditary trait. He was also a member of the American Eugenics Organization, which formed in 1916. Terman's version of the test, the Stanford revision of the Binet-Simon scale, became known as the Stanford-Binet test, and it was promoted by Lewis Terman as a way to weed out mentally disabled children from the rest of the school-age population. By now, Alfred Binet's original goal of testing children in order to advocate for better education had been lost and replaced with eugenics. It was at this time that another popular book was published that promoted eugenics, but unlike Henry Goddard or Lewis Terman, it was not a work of science. The book The Passing of the Great Race by Madison Grant was published in 1916. Like the Kalakak family, it was a huge success with lasting consequences. Madison Grant's ideas will probably sound familiar to you if you've heard of the Great Replacement ideology subscribed to by people like Donald Trump, Richard Spencer, Stephen Miller, Steve Bannon, Bretton Tarrant, and other contemporary right-wing racists. In Grant's 1916 version, the superior Nordic race is under threat by immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe. Madison Grant was the Alfred Pletz of America, 
He brought the illuminationist racism at the root of eugenics to the forefront of the discourse. Quote, a rigid system of selection, he wrote, through the elimination of those who are weak or unfit, in other words, social failures, would solve the whole question in 100 years, as well as enable us to get rid of the undesirables who crowd our jails, hospitals, and insane asylums. He thought that unfavorable races should be segregated into ghettos, overseen by public health officers given absolute power. This would prevent the superior Nordic race from committing race suicide by marrying and having children with inferior races. The Passing of the Great Race was the popular and influential book on race science before World War I, and his work was to influence the course of history in ways he couldn't have imagined. But before we get to that, it was somewhat ironic that at the very time that The Passing of the Great Race was published, the so-called races of Europe were slaughtering each other by the hundreds of thousands. The Great War had interrupted the German side of the eugenics axis, but in the United States, the war would be the final piece transformed the U.S. into a full-fledged eugenicist republic. When the U.S. decided to enter the Great War on the side of the Allies, it faced the daunting task of creating a national armed forces almost from nothing. The few soldiers in the U.S. Army that had any military experience at all had gained it from fighting American Indians or Mexican bandits. As thousands of American men made their way to recruitment posts, the government realized it had to evaluate their fitness for service. To do this, they decided to test not just the men's physical health, but also their mental and emotional functionality. The task fell to Robert Yerkes, the president of the American Psychological Association and member of the Eugenics Record Office. Yerkes had been taught by Charles Davenport at Harvard, and he was a strong believer in eugenics. He also believed that the kind of intelligence testing pioneered by Henry Goddard and Lewis Terman could be applied on a massive scale in order to evaluate the incoming recruits. Yerkes, along with Lewis Terman and a few other scientists, developed two tests, Army Alpha and Army Beta. They would be taken by well over one million U.S. recruits by the end of the war. Army Alpha purported to measure verbal ability, numerical ability, ability to follow directions, and knowledge of information. Test scores would assign the test taker a score ranging from a high of A to a low of E. These letter grades were used to determine a recruit's capability of serving at all, as well as his job classification and his potential for a leadership position. Recruits who were illiterate, uneducated, or didn't speak English were given a test called Army Beta, a nonverbal version of Army Alpha. Since Army Beta was a written test, it was usually given to between 100 and 200 men at a time, and took between 50 to 60 minutes to complete. Both tests represented the first mass administration of multiple-choice IQ testing. But despite Robert Yerkes's claims that Army Alpha and Beta tested native intelligence, not training or education, there were questions on the test that were specific to American culture. Question 18 of one of the Army Alpha tests asks what kind of ads that the character Velvet Joe appears in. The correct answer is tobacco ads, not soap, drug goods, or tooth powder. But Yerkes and his colleagues dismissed any concerns as they were excited by the prospect of being able to create such a large data set. But when they analyzed the data, they were stunned. They found that almost half of the white recruits were, by their measure, feeble-minded. 
and the feeble-minded soldiers were all recent immigrants from Eastern and Southern Europe. Later, psychologists would realize that Yergi's internment were actually administering a test not of inherent mental capacity or IQ, but of cultural assimilation. The test scores of any given recruit correlated exactly with the number of years he had been living in the U.S. Despite this, many in the public and the government treated the results of the Army Alpha and Beta tests as concrete evidence that Madison Grant had been right. But there was another thing that shocked the government about the U.S. recruits. Upon physical examination, many of them were found to have contracted venereal disease, usually either gonorrhea or syphilis. In hindsight, it's not surprising that so many young men raised in a culture where discussing sex was taboo had contracted sexually transmitted diseases. But the U.S. government treated the high rates of VD among their army recruits as a threat to national security, especially since there was no easy or fast way to treat venereal disease. Infected soldiers would have to be taken out of active duty for weeks, if not longer. Now public health officials concluded that there was a hidden epidemic of VD among the population, which might threaten America's ability to field a fighting force. For the men, the government issued basic prophylactics. A private organization named the American Social Hygiene Association, which was chartered in 1914 and funded by John D. Rockefeller, had already been waging a public health campaign against the spread of STDs by creating propaganda posters and other public media as well as enlisting doctors and health personnel in their cause. They were the first group to use the cause of public health as a legal justification for examining and incarcerating women against their will, with the cooperation of local and state legal and health authorities. Beginning in 1917, the government added their own funding to the ASHES anti-VD campaign, which now grew exponentially. They called it the, quote, American plan, unquote and it would enforce, quote, measures necessary to protect the general public, and particularly the delinquent girls of every community, including measures for their rehabilitation, unquote. Unlike the doctors of the 19th century, the doctors of the new 20th century would be able to put into practice their solutions to the social problem of vice and degeneracy. On the national level, the American plan was overseen by the Commission on Training Camp Activities, run by Raymond Fosdick, a protege of John D. Rockefeller. But though it was a federal initiative, all the real work was done by local officials and state boards of health. They would use police to shadow female sex workers and women that were merely suspected of being sexually promiscuous, which could mean being seen in the company of a soldier or simply eating alone at a restaurant. Thousands of women were taken into custody against their will without due process, given invasive examinations, and incarcerated in reformatories, detention hospitals, and jails. The women were told that they would be held until they were cured, however long that took, and however the doctors defined it. Women who carried syphilis were forced to take injections of mercury and arsenic, which were intended to treat the venereal disease, but were usually ineffective, toxic, and painful. If the women fought back too tenaciously, they would be beaten, and if they still refused, they would be sterilized. There was no cure for gonorrhea, so those women were simply sterilized. But the women did fight back. Some went on hunger strikes. Some attacked and overwhelmed their captors and escaped. The Newport News City Farm, 
a jail which had been built especially to house women imprisoned under the American plan, was burned to the ground by the inmates in the summer of 1919. Some women who were not yet incarcerated tried to lobby against the American plan and warned the public against it, to no avail. In 1918, 1,121 people in Michigan were hospitalized at the expense of the state because the authorities believed they had STIs. 49 were men and 1,072 were women. One of the women was named Nina McCall. In late October 1918, the sheriff of St. Louis, Michigan, detained Nina and brought her to the local health officer, a man named Thomas Carney. McCall had just turned 18 and was not sexually active, so she knew there was no way she had an STI. But nevertheless, she followed orders. After a quick and uncomfortable exam, Thomas Carney declared that she had gonorrhea and syphilis. Carney coerced Nina into committing herself to the dilapidated Bay City Detention Hospital. She was held there for three months, where the matron, Mary Corrigan, forced Nina to take painful injections of mercury, which made her hair and teeth fall out, as well as forced her to do hard labor. She was released from Bay City Detention Hospital in early 1919, but she was harassed by a social worker named Ida Peck. Peck told Nina if she didn't continue taking the mercury injections, she would be put back into the detention hospital. Nina tried to escape, living under an alias a few different towns across Michigan, but Ida Peck threatened Nina's mother with imprisonment. So she returned. But when she did, she sued Thomas Carney, Mary Corrigan, and Ida Peck. After losing the first trial, she won her case in the Michigan Supreme Court, which in 1921 said that no health official could detain and examine a woman without reasonable suspicion. But they also said that if a health official did have reasonable grounds to suspect a woman was infected, they had every right to detain, examine, and quarantine anyone they desired with no consent required or due process rights available. In this sense, the ruling was a victory for the public health officials and police officers, the latter of whom tended to use checking for VD as a way to sexually assault the women they arrested for other crimes, especially political dissenters, protesters, civil rights activists, and sex workers. The Commission on Training Camp Activities was formally disbanded in 1919 and Raymond Fosdick went on to become the first Undersecretary General of the League of Nations, and later the President of the Rockefeller Foundation. But the policy of the American plan never officially ended. On the contrary, it was quietly considered a success by the U.S. government. It demonstrated how the doctrine of public health could unite the expertise of the medical doctors with the strength of the state for the good of all, State boards of health and local officials across the U.S. continued to enforce the principles of the plan well into the 1970s. And the infrastructure of detention centers, camps, and jails that were built by the government to imprison women under the plan would, in about 20 years, be reused to incarcerate prisoners of war, conscientious objectors, and Americans of Japanese and German descent. All of these developments were closely watched by the German eugenicists. Now that the Great War was over, eugenics as an applied science was going to reach new heights of influence and power.
In the aftermath of the Great War, a wave of xenophobia swept across Europe and America, aided by the fact that eugenics was now not only accepted among scientists, but also becoming part of the mainstream of American society. One of the groups mainstreaming eugenics was the American Eugenics Society, founded in 1923. The AES was mostly made up of 28 state committees that used state fairs to popularize the concept and practice of eugenics. At the fairs, the AES sponsored fitter family contests, which were presented as friendly competitions between couples. Each couple would have their health, intelligence, behavior, and appearance measured and ranked. Whichever couple had the best combination of traits would theoretically have the best children and thus win the contest. The AES also displayed exhibits meant to shape the public perception of eugenics. The exhibits used flashing lights to show various birth rates. According to the exhibits, a normal to above average child was born every seven and a half minutes, but a feeble-minded child was born every 40 seconds and a future criminal every 50 seconds. The exhibits also were full of statistics, including one that purported to show that every 15 seconds, $100 of taxpayer money went towards caring for the mentally ill. In addition to these efforts, the AES also lobbied for the wider use of intelligence tests on students and immigrants to the U.S. But at this point, the lobbying was almost unnecessary, as the government had now, based on the army recruit tests of Robert Yerkes, to limit immigration to almost nothing. In 1921, Robert Yerkes was appointed to the post of expert eugenic agent to the House Committee on Immigration and Naturalization. Yerkes strongly believed that America was under threat by, quote, the menace of race deterioration. So he created a system of immigration quotas called the National Origins Formula. The idea behind it was to keep the ethnic makeup of the American population from changing too far from its supposedly racially Nordic and religiously Protestant origins, though this of course ignored the indigenous Americans and the descendants of those brought to the Americas as enslaved Africans. Using the national origins formula, the Emergency Quota Act of 1921 restricted immigration to 3% of foreign-born persons of each nationality that had already resided in the U.S. back in 1910, based on the census. He was openly discriminatory against any new arrivals from Southern and Eastern Europe and Asia. Even more restrictive was the Immigration Act of 1924, also called the National Origins Act. It said that for three years the 3% would be reduced to 2%, and that the nationalities used for the quotas would be based on the census of 1890, not that of 1910. And the Asian Exclusion Act of 1924 effectively banned any people from South Asia and East Asia from immigrating to the U.S. at all. But protecting America's borders from the unfit by restricting immigration was only half of the eugenics agenda. The other half was preventing the unfit from reproducing their own population within America's borders. The end of the Great War had brought to the U.S. not only an upsurge in xenophobia, but also a huge increase in violent racism directed against African Americans, Jews, and ethnic minorities in general. Late winter through early autumn of 1919 came to be known as the Red Summer, because so many hundreds of black Americans were attacked, 
lynched or murdered across the U.S. by rioting white Americans. It was also the first Red Scare, when Americans became paranoid about the influence of Bolshevism and anarchism infiltrating the U.S., not only through Jewish and Italian immigrants, but also African-American labor organizers and civil rights leaders. Madison Grant's racist theories of the white civilization against non-white barbarism had been amplified and made even more popular by his protege, Lothrop Stoddard. Stoddard's book, The Rising Tide of Color Against White World Supremacy, was published in 1920, which is just what it sounds like. But whereas Grant was mostly concerned with the Nordic race diluting its purity by mixing with those from the Mediterranean or Russia, Stoddard focused his racist ire on black Americans and the poor. Stoddard was also a member of the Ku Klux Klan, which had been refounded in 1915. This second version of the Klan was created to terrorize and kill blacks, Jews, and Catholics, mostly in the urban centers of the American West and Midwest, and later the South. By the mid-1920s, they had become a national organization with millions of members. It's not a coincidence that American society and culture shifted towards racial bigotry and violence at the same time that eugenics became widely accepted in theory and practice. The medical establishment provided two options for purifying and uplifting the population, sterilization and euthanasia. Sterilization, as we've seen, was already popular among public health officials on the state and local levels. Sterilization created a better gene pool while also saving the state money by shrinking the potential number of those who might need welfare or other social assistance in the future. It was especially popular in California, the third state in the country to enact a law allowing for involuntary sterilization of the unfit and feeble-minded. By 1921, health officials in California had performed 80% of all sterilizations in the U.S. Most of these took place in state mental hospitals, in a program begun by Dr. Leo Stanley. Stanley was the chief surgeon of the San Quentin Penitentiary, and like all eugenicists, he believed that criminality was linked to inheritance and thus had to be biological. In particular, Stanley was convinced it was related to the endocrine system. Starting in 1913 and continuing for 28 years, Stanley performed strange surgeries on male prisoners in an attempt to cure them. His most common surgery was to replace the testicles of a living prisoner with those of a recently deceased man who was considered fit. He would convince the prisoners that this surgery would enhance their sexual performance, which it obviously didn't. In fact, his surgeries were never successful, despite operating on more than 600 prisoners by the time he was done. But in general, many more women than men were forcibly sterilized. One of those women was named Carrie Buck. Despite California's enthusiasm, the laws and rules around involuntary sterilization varied from state to state. To fix this inconsistency, a man named Harry Laughlin who worked with Charles Davenport at the Eugenics Record Office in Cold Spring Harbor, consulted with lawyers to draft a model sterilization law for use by state legislatures looking to create their own eugenics laws. Laughlin's model was used by Virginia in 1924 to create a law that allowed for the sterilization of the mentally ill and mentally disabled without their consent. On September 10th of that year, Dr. Albert Pretty filed a petition 
to have 18-year-old Carrie Buck sterilized against her will. Dr. Pretty was the superintendent of the Virginia State Colony for Epileptics and Feeble-Minded, where Buck had recently been committed. But Carrie had not been committed because she was mentally handicapped. In the summer of 1923, Carrie had been raped by her adoptive mother's nephew and given birth to a child as a result. Her family committed her to the Virginia institution to distance themselves from her in order to salvage their own reputation. Carrie wasn't feeble-minded at all, but Dr. Pretty and his fellow eugenicists were looking for a test case for the Virginia sterilization law. And unfortunately for Carrie, they had picked her. The entire case was a sham, because Irving Whitehead, the man appointed to be Carrie's lawyer, was himself a true believer in eugenics, who worked closely with Pretty and even served on the board of the Virginia State Colony. His defense of Carrie was practically non-existent. The goal was to establish a legal precedent that would allow other states to defend their own sterilization and eugenics laws. While the case was pending, Pretty passed away, so his role as the plaintiff was taken by his successor, Dr. John Hendren Bell. The case of Buck v. Bell made it to the Supreme Court of Appeals of Virginia, which found in favor of Bell. As planned, White had appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, using the argument that her due process right to procreate was being violated, as well as the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, since not everyone labeled feeble-minded was being forcibly sterilized. On May 2, 1927, the U.S. Supreme Court decided 8-1 to one in favor of Dr. Bell. The ruling was written by Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., who said that public health and common welfare was more important than any one person's rights over their own body. Quote, we have seen more than once, he wrote, that the public welfare may call upon the best citizens for their lives. It would be strange if it could not call upon those who already sap the strength of the state for these lesser sacrifices, often not felt to be such by those concerned, to prevent our being swamped with incompetence. It is better for all the world if, instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime, or to let them starve for imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. The principle that sustains compulsory vaccination is broad enough to cover cutting the fallopian tubes. Three generations of imbeciles is enough." Unquote. Carrie Buck was indeed sterilized against her will. Now that it was clear that doctors who forcibly sterilized their patients could not be sued by their patients or their patients' families, the number of sterilizations increased sharply. But what about the other option, euthanasia? The term euthanasia was an ancient Greek word meaning essentially good death. It had been repurposed by the German physician Carl Friedrich Heinrich Marx in the 1820s, who used it to describe a way for doctors to ease the suffering of a dying patient through medication and personal attention and support. By the late 19th century, some Americans argued that euthanasia could also mean the right of terminally ill patients to end their own suffering through suicide. By the early 20th century, the meaning of the term euthanasia had been stretched to mean ending the life of the unfit and the degenerate. It was one of the measures suggested in a 1911 report by the American Breeders Association on the, quote, best practical means for cutting off the defective germplasm in the human population. Some eugenicists promoted the idea of public, locally operated gas chambers, or lethal chambers, 
which had been originally developed by a British doctor in the 1880s for painlessly killing stray cats and dogs. The widespread use of government-sanctioned lethal chambers to euthanize the unfit had been debated in eugenic circles ever since, with the doctors, physicians, and governments generally agreeing that the chambers were fine in theory, but the public would never allow it. One doctor who believed in killing the unfit, or at least letting them die, was Dr. Harry Hazelton, the chief surgeon at the German American Hospital in Chicago. Hazelton had a reputation as an outspoken proponent of eugenics. When the parents of a syphilitic child named John Bollinger brought John to the hospital in Chicago for treatment, Dr. Hazelden convinced John's parents that John would be better off dead, since he would always be a social outcast and a burden on society. Once word got out, there was a public backlash. Chicago's health commissioner, Dr. John Dill Robertson, personally pleaded with Hazelton to try and save the child. But Hazelden was unmoved. On the contrary, he had been counting on the publicity in order to promote his eugenicist cause. On November 17, 1915, John Bollinger died in Hazelden's care. The state of Illinois took Hazelden to court for homicide, but after a contentious trial, a jury decided that he had acted immorally, but not illegally, and he was acquitted. The Illinois Board of Health tried to revoke Hazelden's medical license, but he had too many high-profile public supporters, like Charles Davenport, and they gave up. He was expelled from the Chicago Medical Society, mostly out of embarrassment over Hazelden's relentless self-promotion and publicity. For example, the 1917 film The Black Stork, written by reporter Jack Late and starring Dr. Harry Hazelden as a fictionalized version of himself in a fictional version of John Bollinger's death. At one point, Dr. Dickey, played by Dr. Hazelden himself, remarks that, quote, there are times when saving a life is a greater crime than taking one. The film ends with Congress passing mandatory premarital testing laws in order to prevent the birth of handicapped or so-called defective children. Hazelden, bizarrely, had wanted this low-budget ego trip to be a date-night movie for couples, but most local censors would not allow the film to be screened for mixed audiences of both men and women, since it dealt openly with sexual reproduction. The film was a success, playing on and off in theaters for over a decade, but it didn't do for euthanasia what Hazelden hoped it would. Americans in general were, for whatever reason, reluctant to make the leap from sterilizing the unfit to simply killing them outright. The closest thing in the U.S. were doctors who, like Hazelden, let some sick children die rather than treat them, and other doctors who engaged in lethal neglect at mental institutions. This was especially true at institutions for the feeble-minded, which were notorious for their high death rates. But this was heralded by doctors like Hazelden and eugenicists like Davenport as a sign of success, not failure. For example, Davenport and his colleagues felt, erroneously, that those who died of tuberculosis succumbed due to their inferior genes. So the deaths of thousands of sick children who could have otherwise been treated was seen as a purification of the gene pool. At one international conference on eugenics, Davenport said that, quote, one may even view with satisfaction the high death rate in an institution for low-grade feeble-minded, while one regards as a national disaster the loss of the infant child of exceptional parents. Or as Harry Hazelden put it more succinctly, death is the greatest and lasting disinfectant. But this homicidal neglect 
was essentially passive euthanasia. No one in the United States was openly advocating that the unfit should be actively rounded up and killed outside of some extremist groups and marginal figures. It was not in America that euthanasia would become mainstream and commonplace. It was Germany. Germany spent most of the 1920s in economic and political turmoil in the aftermath of its loss in the Great War. That unrest had allowed a small party of German fascists to grow into a formidable political faction, the National Socialist German Workers' Party, usually shortened to Nazis. The name of their party might sound socialist, but that was simply an early label used to make them more interesting to the German working class. In reality, they were fascist far-right ultranationalists who were violently authoritarian, anti-Semitic, and anti-communist. In 1921, Adolf Hitler was named to the position of Führer, the party leader. Hitler, like the other Nazis, admired the eugenics laws and policies of the United States. Hitler especially admired the work of Madison Grant, though he preferred the term Aryan to Nordic. In the 1930s, Hitler wrote Grant a fan letter where he called the passing of the great race, quote, his Bible. The power and influence of the Nazis grew steadily, and in November 1923, they tried to stage a coup d'etat to take over the German government. This coup failed when the German army refused to back the plotters. Hitler and his compatriots were imprisoned, and the Nazi party was banned. But there was a great deal of sympathy towards the Nazis and the German establishment, especially among the middle and upper classes. Instead of being executed for treason, Hitler was given a light sentence, during which he wrote his autobiography, Mein Kampf or My Struggle, published in 1925. The book made it clear that Hitler strongly admired the American eugenics program. There is today one state, he wrote, in which at least weak beginnings toward a better conception of immigration are noticeable. Of course, it is not our model German Republic, but the United States. After Hitler was released in 1925, he got the ban on the Nazi party lifted and refounded the party as its undisputed leader. The Nazis rebranded themselves into a mainstream political party without changing any of their core beliefs. They could do this because German society had turned around in the mid-twenties from chaos to stability and then prosperity. That prosperity was aided by investments and financial aid to Germany's eugenic institutions from wealthy Americans. By 1926, John D. Rockefeller had donated the modern equivalent of almost $4 million to hundreds of German researchers in an effort to rebuild the pre-war German-American eugenics axis. In May 1926, Rockefeller gave $250,000 to the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Psychiatry. And in 1929, Rockefeller gave $317,000 to the Institute for Brain Research, part of the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute. These were all eugenicist institutions. The Institute for Brain Research in particular would later become notorious under the leadership of Ernst Rudin, as we'll see. The Nazis also took much of the racist ideology straight from American sources. The chief racist ideologue of the Germans, Alfred Rosenberg, admired the work of Lothrop Stoddard, so much that he borrowed the term Untermensch, underman, from the German translation of one of Stoddard's books. The global economic crash of 1929 and the ensuing Great Depression brought a return of chaos to Germany, which the Nazis were able to use in their favor. They emerged in 1932 as a powerful political party with strong popular support. The conservative German political establishment tried to co-opt Hitler's popularity in early 1933, 
by naming him chancellor of a divided government, giving him a higher profile but less actual political power. This backfired when Hitler and the Nazis burned the Reichstag in February 1933 and used the ensuing state of emergency to give Hitler dictatorial powers. Germany was now a one-party state, with Hitler at the head of both the Nazi party and the German government, which were merged together, and German doctors were enthusiastic party members. German doctors, especially physicians, joined the Nazi party earlier and in greater numbers than any other professional group. This was in part because they were completely sympathetic to the racial hygiene ideology of Alfred Pletz and others. It was also because they saw a chance for professional advancement. The medical profession in Germany had been dominated by Jewish doctors since the end of the war. The National Socialist Physicians League, formed in 1929 with the goal of purging all Jews from the German medical community, had thousands of doctors who joined. In a purely economic sense, the aggressive and systematic disenfranchisement of Jewish doctors by the German medical establishment was a success. The mean annual earnings of physicians constantly increased after Hitler became chancellor on January 30, 1933. Incidentally, the Jewish doctors that fled from the Nazis mostly ended up in the United States. Nineteen thirty-three would turn out to be the pivotal year for eugenics. To understand what happened, we have to back up slightly. The Nazis valued military power and technology above every other aspect of society. Government, industry, agriculture, technology, education, and of course healthcare were all militarized. Psychologists and psychiatrists put their services to work keeping soldiers fit for duty and keeping workers on the factory floor. And throughout the 1930s, doctors were constantly researching the effects of various chemicals on humans in order to find new chemical weapons, and they tested the effects of extreme temperature and air pressure as part of what the Germans called Luftfahrtmedizin, or aviation medicine. But at the same time, German doctors adhered to a strict code of ethics. In 1931, an experimental tuberculosis vaccine killed 75 children in the town of Lübeck. As a result, the Reich Health Office issued strict guidelines forbidding experiments with any risk involved on anyone who was dying or was under the age of 18, and later laws forbade experiments that caused pain or injury to animals, specifically experiments involving exposure to cold, heat, or infection. But as in America, this ethics code did nothing to stop doctors and physicians in Germany from engaging in mass sterilization and euthanasia. The German code was focused on values like cleanliness, orderliness, punctuality, and obedience to legal authority, especially Hitler's authority. Like in America, medical ethics meant doing the right thing for society, even if that was racist, misogynist, classist, and even homicidal. German medicine was also suffused with the race hygiene of Alfred Pletz. With the establishment of the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Anthropology, Human Genetics, and Eugenics in 1927, racial hygiene gained strong mainstream institutional funding and support. By 1932, courses on racial hygiene were being taught in the medical faculties of most German universities. And Germany as a whole was obsessed with health in general, not just as a metaphor for the strength of the state or the quality of the gene pool, but as an everyday problem. Maimed and wounded soldiers of the Great War were a common sight, 
the birth rate was declining. Rapid industrialization and urbanization created cities that were overcrowded, filthy, and ridden with various contagious diseases. And the economic disruption that led to starvation-level deprivations during the war continued for several years, leading to shortages of various goods and real concern for the long-term health of German children and families. Physical fitness and Aryan features were an essential part of the Nazi aesthetic because they represented the resurgence of the healthy German who was naturally superior in the face of oppression by the inferior masses. Eugenics was seen as another way to restore the health of the German population. By 1932, the German medical establishment was petitioning the Weimar Republic for a national law that would permit and regulate sterilization on eugenic grounds. So the stage was set for the events of 1933. In California, which was now the epicenter of eugenics in the United States, 1933 saw at least 1,278 people sterilized against their will, of which 700 were women. These women were usually sterilized because they were poor, an ethnic minority such as Mexican, Native American, Asian, Italian, or both. Patients with Spanish-sounding surnames were three times as likely to be sterilized. Women could be sterilized simply because they were perceived by the male doctors and female nurses and administrators to be too sexually active. Men would be sterilized if they were perceived to be homosexual. Most of these operations were performed at the Sonoma State Home, where 388 were sterilized, and the Patton State Hospital, where 363 were sterilized. The other victims were sterilized at various state hospitals around the state. California would eventually sterilize about 20,000 people, out of 60,000 Americans sterilized between about 1919 and 1970. Meanwhile, in Germany, Reich Interior Minister Wilhelm Frick established a, quote, expert advisory committee for population and racial policy, which included Pletz, Ernst Rudin, and two others. Their expert advice led to a new law passed on July 14th, the Law for the Prevention of Hereditarily Diseased Offspring. This law ordered compulsory sterilization of the feeble-minded and other categories of people, by force if necessary. And it was based around the model eugenics law developed by Harry Laughlin at the Eugenics Record Office in Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. Those who could be forcibly sterilized included schizophrenics, the second largest group, and those with bipolar disorder, which they called manic depression, genetic epilepsy, Huntington's chorea, genetic blindness, genetic deafness, severe physical deformity, and chronic alcoholism. Enforcement of the law began on January 1, 1934. The law created new courts called hereditary health courts. The medical judges of these courts included men like Eugen Fischer, the medically trained director of the Berlin Eugenics Institute, and Otmar von Verschuer, a geneticist known for his research on twins. These courts saw hundreds of medical doctors and psychiatrists present evidence supporting the state's case for sterilization. They also participated in a vigorous public relations campaign to build support for the program. Soon the Germans were sterilizing more than 5,000 people per month. Within the first year of the program, the genetic health courts had decided over 56,000 cases in favor of sterilization. A large economy emerged around research, engineering, and medical supplies related to sterilization techniques and equipment. Unlike the American victims, who were mostly asylum inmates or ethnic minorities, most of the German victims were poor or working-class farm workers, house servants, unskilled factory workers, jobless housewives, unmarried mothers, and sex workers. 
The Nazis not only sterilized current inmates of institutions, they searched through old files of psychiatric clinics and hospitals to find Germans to sterilize. Between 1934 and 1939, about 320,000 Germans, 0.5% of the entire population, were sterilized. American observers were impressed. California eugenicists republished Nazi propaganda and arranged for Nazi scientific exhibits, like August 1934's display at the LA County Museum for the annual meeting of the American Public Health Association. Charles Goethe, a wealthy California real estate developer and strong proponent of eugenics, traveled to Germany to observe their work. He told one of his eugenicist colleagues, quote, you'll be interested to know that your work has played a powerful part in shaping the opinions of the group of intellectuals who are behind Hitler in this epoch-making program. Everywhere I sensed that their opinions have been tremendously stimulated by American thought. Joseph DeJarnett, superintendent of Virginia's Western State Hospital, publicly commented that, quote, the Germans are beating us at our own game. When the International Federation of Eugenics Organizations met in the Netherlands in 1936, Germany's laws dominated the discussion. Harry Laughlin was awarded an honorary degree by the University of Heidelberg in 1936 for his work on behalf of, quote, the science of racial cleansing. Laughlin and Charles Davenport had strong working ties to numerous Nazi institutions and publications. Laughlin was also the head of the Pioneer Fund, a racist and eugenicist organization founded in 1937 by Wycliffe Draper, the heir to a large textile manufacturing fortune. The Pioneer Fund's first project was to distribute two Nazi propaganda films purporting to be documentaries about their success in the field of eugenics. And in 1932, the U.S. Public Health Service had begun one of the largest human experimentation studies in history. Working with Tuskegee University, a historically black college in Alabama, U.S. public health officials enrolled 600 poor African-American sharecroppers from Macon County, Alabama, who were convinced by registered nurse Eunice Rivers to join a study that they were told would treat them for bad blood, a local term that covered various medical conditions like syphilis, anemia, and fatigue. In reality, the goal of the study was to observe the long-term effects of syphilis if it went untreated. 399 of the 600 had syphilis, but those men that were infected were never told this. The men were told the study would last for six months, when it actually lasted for 40 years. And even after penicillin became available as a cure for syphilis in 1947, none of the men were cured so that the study could continue while the men continued to get sick and die, infect their wives, and sometimes infect their children. Clearly, the American-German eugenics axis was fully operational. But the German medical community was so zealous in its pursuit of racial hygiene that they alarmed the general population. Dr. Gerhard Wagner, one of the most prominent and high-ranking Nazi doctors, warned Adolf Hitler in a 1937 memorandum that Germans had, quote, an often almost psychotic fear to get under the wheels of this law, and protested the sterilization of entire families whom Providence did not give the chance to receive the degree of formal schooling that is required to pass the intelligence tests." Unquote. Hitler was sensitive to public opinion turning decisively against him, so he reigned in the medical community. As a result, mass sterilization came to a stop in 1939. But the lesson the Nazi doctors took from this was that their next efforts needed to be kept secret. 
so they tried to cover up the next phase of their agenda, though this attempt at secrecy ultimately failed. Hitler had supposedly been interested in instituting a large-scale euthanasia program as early as 1933, when the sterilization legislation was being discussed. On August 18, 1939, two weeks before Germany's invasion of Poland, the government issued a confidential decree which required doctors, physicians, and midwives to notify the government of the birth of any deformed or handicapped baby or child to the, up to the age of three. A team of 48 psychiatrists combed through asylum inmates looking for those suitable for killing. Out of 283,000 patients, 75,000 were marked for death. In September 1939, Hitler issued the order to begin Action T4. Soon after the order was given, an organizational headquarters was set up in a Berlin villa on Tiergartenstrasse 4, hence the name Operation or Action T4. It was headed by Karl Brandt, Hitler's personal doctor, and Philipp Buhler, head of the Chancellery of the Fuhrer. Victor Brack, a high-ranking Nazi official, and his deputy Werner Blankenberg ran the daily operation, with Brack serving as a liaison between the government and the doctors that were chosen to implement the T4 program. T4 was seen by the Nazis and their medical staff as a logical extension of their health policy against Lebens und Wertes Leben, lives unworthy of life. But shifting decisively from sterilization to euthanasia, the victims ranged from infants born with Down syndrome or some other birth defect to elderly psychiatric patients judged to be incurably ill. Asylums were sent special forms to be filled out that returned with details about their patients' conditions. These forms were reviewed by specially recruited doctors and briefly looked over by a senior physician. Though the language of race hygiene was still in place, the invasion of Poland meant that Germany was now focused completely on war. As a result, the focus of T4 was not on racial purity, but rather the ability of the patients to work and thus contribute to the war effort. T4 was also used by the medical establishment as a way to make money. Since the T4 organization, like any other healthcare provider, build the government for the medical and healthcare related services and rendered. The fee and reimbursement structure annually generated a net surplus in the range of millions of Reichsmarks. The initial method of killing was lethal injection, but this was seen to be too slow. With Hitler's blessing, the T4 doctors decided to try an idea put forth by Dr. Ernst Robert Gravitz, bottled carbon monoxide gas released into a sealed room to painlessly suffocate the occupants. It was the Nazi version of the old lethal chamber. The first test occurred on January 9, 1940, in the Brandenburg Sanitarium. About 20 people were killed, while nurses, physicians, and psychiatrists observed. The test was considered a success. Because of Victor Brock's role in developing what would come to be called the gas chamber, it was known by other Nazis by the euphemism Brack's device, and murder by gassing was the Brack remedy. At least 695 people were taken from Kaufbaren Psychiatric Hospital and put to death. Low-fat food was given to others, and they eventually starved to death. By August 1941, T4 had already exceeded its original quota of 70,000 killings by over 273 people. T4 was an open secret soon after it began in September 1939, and it remained so until public anxiety about the killings persuaded Hitler and the SS to conduct it in secret for four more years. By 1945, about 200,000 Germans were killed, including at least 5,000 infants and children. It's important to remember 
that there was no pressure applied to the T4 doctors at any point during the program. German physicians were not coerced into killing psychiatric patients or disabled children. They were simply empowered to do so, so they did, often on their own initiative. Nineteen thirty nine was when the German American eugenics connection began to fall apart. The invasion of Poland began a slow turning of public opinion against Germany in America. The Americans wanted no part of the war in Europe and had no sympathy for Germany's Jewish population, even turning away an ocean liner full of endangered Jewish refugees in nineteen thirty nine. But the American eugenics movement had begun to run out of steam by then. Prominent leftists and progressives who had supported eugenics in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century had mostly abandoned it once it became clear that the goal of most eugenicists was not a eugenic utopia, but mass population control and state-sanctioned murder. That left the eugenics agenda to be dominated by hardcore racists and amoral psychopaths, which obviously hurt its public appeal. The shoddiness of the science that undergirded the entire eugenics program came into sharper focus. Henry Goddard had long since disavowed his early work, Prominent opponents of eugenics like Clarence Darrow, Franz Boas, Julian Huxley, and Ashley Montague began to be taken more seriously. And when the Nazis went to war with Britain and France in 1939, it convinced many wealthy American donors, notably John D. Rockefeller, to pull their funds from German euthanasia institutions and programs. Embarrassed by the friendly relationship between Charles Davenport, Henry Laughlin, and the Nazi regime, the Carnegie Institution shut down the eugenics record office. But in Germany, the eugenicists were about to reach their zenith. Like the U.S., Germany had a large infrastructure of prisons and internment camps ready for use when the Nazis came to power. They had been steadily filling these facilities with criminals, political dissidents, journalists, suspect foreigners, prisoners of war, Roma, and the Jews. It's not a coincidence that when Heinrich Himmler, head of the entire concentration camp system, decided in early 1941 to alleviate overcrowding at the Dachau camp. He didn't leave it to the camp SS, but instead turned to the most prominent, respected experts in systematic large-scale killing, the doctors of the T4 program. Himmler knew he could trust them, and he knew some of them personally. Victor Brack had been Himmler's driver. The implementation of this new program, codenamed Action 14F13, began at Sachsenhausen on April 4, 1941 where doctors Friedrich Menecke and Theodore Steinmeier examined almost a hundred prisoners, all of whom would later be killed. Dr. Menecke was intimately involved in Action 14F13. He performed similar services at Auschwitz, Buchenwald, Dachau, Ravensbrück, and elsewhere, filling out forms that led to the deaths of thousands of prisoners. The mass killing was shrouded in secrecy to avoid the public outcry that accompanied the T4 program. The Camp SS would encourage rumors that those examined by the doctors were being selected for light work and better conditions to keep prisoners calm and compliant, though the prisoners eventually figured out what was actually going on. Action 14F13 was originally intended to target primarily sick, weak, and disabled prisoners, as well as those considered quote-unquote criminals, as defined by the Nazis and the doctors. Those prisoners who were Jewish tended to be in one or more of those categories, and so were disproportionately victims of the killing. But in the beginning, the murders were not intentionally anti-Semitic. That changed in autumn 1941, shortly after Nazi policy in general became more anti-Jewish. By November 1941, the T4 doctors 
were foregoing physical examinations for Jews and simply filing the proper forms to have them cast. In late 1941 to early 1942, the doctors still selected the elderly and infirm for death, but T4 doctors also included a number of Jews who could still work as a matter of racial policy. A year after it began, and shortly after it was expanded, Action 14F13 was curtailed and then ended. Publicly, Himmler claimed that the program had gone too far, and the camps needed to make a greater contribution to the war economy. More prisoners were to have their health restored instead of killed, so they could labor in the camps. In truth, however, the T4 and the Camp SS were moving in separate directions. Rather than ship the prisoners to external T4 gas chambers, the Camp SS preferred to construct their own gas chambers on site in the camps, which they began doing in Buchenwald in 1941. Meanwhile, as the focus of the T4 organization had shifted to a far larger program of mass extermination, the Holocaust. By spring 1942, many officials had already relocated to occupied Eastern Europe, where they were in great demand for the new death camps at Belzec, Serbobor, and Treblinka. In comparison, the murder of camp prisoners in the euthanasia centers inside Germany lost its significance. This was the apotheosis of the German doctors' contributions to the Nazi regime. The Holocaust stripped away all remaining medical or even scientific justification for the doctors' actions. The leading doctors were no longer the race hygienists of the German Academy or even the T4 program. They were psychotic murderers, like Dr. Joseph Mengele. Mengele became notorious for the many hundreds he personally selected to be sent to the gas chambers at Auschwitz, as well as his horrific experimentation on twins. I won't go into details here because this episode is already dark enough as it is, but it's important to note that while Mengele was committing acts of horror, he was still firmly embedded in the German medical establishment. Mengele's experiments on twins, which were more like torture and murder, were following in the footsteps of his mentor, the revered physician and eugenicist Otmar von Verschuer. Verschuer kept in close touch with Mengele and took a keen interest in his activities. Verschuer requested that Mengele get a large grant from the German Research Foundation to build a laboratory at Auschwitz-Birkenau for Mengele to conduct his experiments. And it was all in the name of eugenics. There were many other doctors who, in the camps, performed what they called experimentation but was really butchery. Sigmund Rascher, Albert Heim, Kurt Blom, the list goes on. The doctors and physicians got around the ethics rules by regarding their victims as human for the purposes of science, but less than human for the purposes of ethics. The German camp doctors never lied or falsified their data or plagiarized. They wanted to be good scientists, although ironically all their collected data turned out to be useless since the work was conducted so shoddily. But in their official records, they refer to their victims not as human subjects, but as Kaninkin, rabbits. The science of the German doctors was indistinguishable from a social and ethical system that was rotten at its core, and they had helped to make it so. During the Nuremberg trials, when some of the doctors were held to account for their actions, the medical community decided that the doctors must have been coerced by the Nazi regime, or they were corrupted in some way, so that their pursuit of science which was seen as objectively and unquestionably good, was made to serve bad purposes by those who were not scientists. In other words, the medical science was a pure instrument forced to serve an impure purpose. The instrument itself remained untouched by evil. 
This obviously ignored how eager the German medical establishment was to push the Nazis towards greater and greater commitments of eugenicist violence, culminating in outright genocide on a massive scale. It also ignored the role of the American medical establishment, public health system, and wealthy funders in laying the foundation of this genocide. Even as the Nuremberg trials were underway, the Tuskegee experiments were continuing, even though at this point many of the men could have been cured with penicillin which was available in 1947. One of the doctors involved in the Tuskegee study, Dr. John Charles Cutler, wanted to embark on a similar study elsewhere. He was inspired by the Terre Haute prison experiments of Dr. John F. Mahoney, who had experimented on prisoners in the U.S. prison in Terre Haute, Indiana, with their consent in 1943 and 1944. The U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. Thomas Perrin, warned Cutler that he would have to keep his work out of the public eye, as popular opinion had turned sharply against human experimentation. So Dr. Cutler chose to work in Guatemala, where he would find a vulnerable population and a government that wouldn't ask any questions. Between 1946 and 1948, Cutler and his colleagues infected soldiers, including some U.S. soldiers, sex workers, prisoners, and mental patients with syphilis and other STDs, funded with a grant from the U.S. National Institutes of Health and the Pan American Sanitary Bureau. It was modeled in methodology on the Terre Haute experiments. But as with Tuskegee, the subjects usually had no idea they were sick and never gave their consent. There were 1,308 in all, between 10 and 72 years old, with the average subject in their 20s. Some subjects were never treated at all. Others were treated, even cured, and then reinfected. Some went through this multiple times. At least 83 victims died by the time the study ended in 1948. By then, the Nuremberg trials were over. In their defense, the German physicians, doctors, and psychologists argued that they were only applying the kinds of laws that already existed in the United States. They cited the long-standing American-German eugenics collaborations. But the U.S. was one of the victors and wasn't about to let itself get put on trial. The doctors were convicted and sentenced, and applied eugenics was now officially a crime against humanity. The trials resulted in a new ethics code meant to govern the future use of medical science in order that it would never again be used for evil purposes, as if the problem all along had been political interference into the pristine work of scientific inquiry. The code declared, among other things, that the informed consent of the subject was absolutely essential, that coercion was forbidden, and that the subjects were not to be put at risk for harm or death. The medical and psychological fields eagerly embraced these rules as they were desperate to maintain their positions of trust and expertise among the governments and corporations of the world. But they needn't have worried. Despite the fact that they never expressed any remorse or even regret over their actions, the German doctors and psychologists never lost their professional positions of prestige and influence. And the eugenicists simply rebranded themselves as geneticists. When the American Society of Human Genetics was founded in 1948, it included several eugenicists, including Josef Mengele's teacher and mentor, Otmar von Verschuer. Verschuer would go on to hold a position at the Institute of Human Genetics at the University of Münster and receive several honors from scientific groups around the world in the mid-1950s. If these groups thought of the Nazi doctors at all, 
they saw them as victims of socialized medicine, a view which fit neatly into Cold War-era anti-Soviet communism in Europe and America. By the time the structure of DNA was discovered in 1952, which would mostly wipe out any lingering ideas about innate racial superiority, the old guard of the eugenics movement had begun to retire or pass away. But many of their ideas lived on in various threads that sometimes came together and sometimes split off. The sterilizations continued, with about 18,000 Americans sterilized after 1945. The sterilization of criminals as a punitive measure, or to cure them of criminality, had ended in 1942 when the Supreme Court decided that it was unconstitutional in Skinner v. Oklahoma. But other sterilizations continued well into the 1960s, and the Eugenics Board of North Carolina operated steadily until 1977, with the involuntary sterilization laws of that state in effect until 2003. The threat of American medical officials using the threat of VD to overreach their authority continued into the 1970s. In some ways, it transformed into the current trend of mass incarceration that began in earnest in 1965. The anti-immigration thread never went away. The national origins formula remained at the core of U.S. immigration policy until 1965. The Pioneer Fund supported efforts of John Tantum allowed him to found two influential anti-immigration groups, the Federation for American Immigration Reform in 1979 and the Center for Immigration Studies in 1985. Tantum used his influence in turn to support Numbers USA, an anti-immigration group that was started in 1997. And the paranoia about immigrants carrying diseases and degrading the gene pool is as strong as ever. When U.S. President Donald Trump announced that he was running for president on June 16, 2015, this was the most popular part of his speech. He said, quote, The U.S. has become a dumping ground for everybody else's problems. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're not sending you. They're not sending you. They're sending people that have lots of problems, and they're bringing those problems with them. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists, and some I assume are good people. But I speak to border guards and they tell us what we're getting, and it only makes common sense. It only makes common sense. They're sending us not the right people. It's coming from more than Mexico. It's coming from all over South and Latin America, and it's coming probably, probably from the Middle East. But we don't know, because we have no protection and we have no competence. We don't know what's happening, and it's got to stop, and it's got to stop fast. Unquote. The darkest legacy of eugenics has also never gone away. This is the threat of violence and human experimentation on prisoners and other vulnerable populations in the name of science. The Tuskegee syphilis experiment ran until 1972, when it was exposed by a whistleblower named Peter Buxton. The ensuing scandal led to a number of U.S. laws restricting such experiments, but by then, hundreds of others had been the subject of human radiation experiments, run by the Atomic Energy Commission, and chemical experiments, mostly run by the U.S. Army. All of their subjects were prisoners and the poor. Many of them never consented to being experimented on, and many of them died as a result. The CIA ran an entire program codenamed MKUltra between 1953 and 1973 that regularly dosed individuals with large amounts of hallucinogenic drugs to observe the results, often without the individual's consent or even knowledge. The CIA and the U.S. military would go even farther in 2003 when they wanted to interrogate captured Iraqi prisoners at the Abu Ghraib military base in Iraq and the Guantanamo Bay camp in Cuba. 
Two psychologists, Dr. James Mitchell and Dr. Bruce Jessen, were paid $81 million to design a program that would allow the interrogators to inflict the maximum amount of physical pain and mental anguish on a subject without killing them. As with the Nazis, the doctors and psychologists were an essential part of the torture program. The doctors designed methods of inflicting severe pain that would not leave visible scars, like being forced to stand on a broken leg, or being force-fed or forcibly hydrated through the rectum, an old medieval torture technique. The psychologists would consult and advise on torture techniques like sleep deprivation, forced nudity, and waterboarding, which simulates the experience of drowning. The doctors also kept the prisoners from actually dying, which might have raised the attention of the International Red Cross or other human rights observers. And if they did accidentally die, the doctors would falsify the medical records and death certificates to conceal any evidence of torture. It's important to note that violent interrogation methods have been decisively proven to be completely ineffective at gathering useful intelligence. This makes the claim that the doctors and psychologists were simply doing their patriotic duty as absurd as the Nazi doctors who claimed to be doing legitimate scientific research. In both cases, the truth was that some of them probably enjoyed it, but all of them saw a chance for professional advancement. And as with the Nazis, no one will be held accountable. The American Psychological Association negotiated a deal with the U.S. Department of Defense that made torturing prisoners a special case not subject to its usual ethics codes. In more recent days, doctors working for the Office of Refugee Resettlement were forcibly feeding or injecting psychotropic drugs into migrant children that were being imprisoned at the Shiloh Residential Treatment Center in Manville, Texas, until they were forced to stop by order of a judge in July 2018. The anti-immigration thread is intertwined with the racist thread as well, which is itself wound into the intelligence testing thread. Wycliffe Draper's Pioneer Fund was a major force in keeping these threads going. The 1954 Brown v. Board of Education decision making racial segregation in schools unconstitutional was the origin point of most contemporary racist ideology in America. Draper saw the controversy as an opportunity to keep alive the old race science ideas that were in danger of dying out, now that they were either discredited or associated with the Nazis or the KKK. To do this, the Pioneer Fund funded and publicized the work of racist psychologists who argued that blacks were inherently inferior to whites and their lower IQ scores proved it. These were prominent figures like Henry E. Garrett, head of psychology at Columbia University until 1955. Garrett believed that desegregation represented a Jewish and Marxist corruption of objective scientific inquiry, and he called it, quote, the scientific hoax of the century. In 1959, Garrett helped found the International Association for the Advancement of Ethnology and Eugenics to promote segregation from a scientific point of view. He coined the term equalitarian dogma in 1961 to describe the now mainstream view that there were no innate differences in intelligence between ethnic groups. Two other scientists affiliated with the IAAEE, R. Travis Osborne and Audrey Shuey, published an influential book in 1958 titled The Testing of Negro Intelligence, which claimed to demonstrate, quote, the presence of native differences between Negroes and whites as determined by intelligence tests. Another recipient of money from the Pioneer Fund was Nobel-winning physicist William Shockley. In 1965, 
Shockley gave a statement at the Nobel Conference on Genetics and the Future of Man, which was a greatest hits of the last century of race science. He claimed that the European settlers of America were smarter because the harsh conditions made them adapt to survive, and he suggested that social welfare programs and education for African Americans were a waste of time as long as they kept having too many children. Therefore, the logical solution was birth control and sterilization. If it had been 30 or even 20 years earlier, these comments would have been accepted at face value. But things had changed, and most of the world was disgusted by Shockley's comments. But he doubled down, stating that he was simply being empiricist and objective, despite the lack of any evidence to back up his claims. This brought him to the attention of the Pioneer Fund, who funded the creation of the Foundation for Research and Education on Eugenics and Dysgenics. This was an old-fashioned eugenics promotion and lobbying organization run by Shockley and psychologist R. Travis Osborne, who was also funded by the Pioneer Fund. Shockley soon found a cause to champion the work of Arthur Jensen, a psychologist at the University of California, Berkeley. In a long article for the Harvard Educational Review titled How Much Can We Boost IQ and Scholastic Achievement? in 1969, Jensen argued that most of the variation in IQ scores between black and white students is genetic in origin, and thus most of the educational and welfare programs for disadvantaged children would fail and should be discontinued. This prompted a backlash from the rest of the academic and scientific establishment. For one thing, Jensen had based his findings on the work of a British educational psychologist named Cyril Burt, who studied twins, whose work was later found to be dubious at best. For another, Jensen's work was clearly ideologically right-wing and racially biased, positions which had fallen out of favor with most of the post-war scientific community. Ironically, it was Jensen, Shockley, and their colleagues that accused their opponents of allowing their science to be tainted by politics and ideology, like they thought had been done under the Nazis. But race science had never been empirical science at all. It had always been an exercise and using the trappings of science, the standards and measurements, the discourse, the professional societies, to reproduce the ideology of white supremacy. But because race science had been simply science, period, for so long, there would always be scientists who refused to accept that science was so easily misused. They wanted science to be a kind of religion, and for a long time, it was. It started from the premise that whiteness was superior, then proceeded to prove that very premise in a way that seemed unimpeachable because it looked and sounded like science. The fact that this is a tautology which doesn't prove anything never occurs to most race scientists, but it sets them in conflict with other scientists who are not white or who reject the ideology of white supremacy. This struggle around race and science has continued in this back and forth since the early 1970s. The last large academic debate came in 1994 with the publication of a book titled The Bell Curve, Intelligence and Class Structure in American Life by political scientist Charles Murray and psychologist Richard J. Herrnstein, who took their inspiration from the work of the earlier Pioneer Fund psychologists. It was mostly a simplified version of Arthur Jensen's work, with even more right-wing ideology included. The media framed the ensuing backlash as a debate, even though there were few academics or serious researchers willing to defend Murray and Herrnstein. This didn't so much discredit the bell curve as it played into the conservative American viewpoint that academia was dominated by left-wing Marxists who rejected empiricism. In that sense, it served an important purpose, since the remaining race scientists were increasingly talking only to each other.
With the advent of the internet, race science went underground. Surviving in chat rooms and message boards, word thrived away from any serious criticism or debunking. Eventually, for the generation that came of age after the bell curve, race science took on an air of forbidden knowledge, something that had to be true because it was so upsetting to their parents and teachers and annoying social justice warriors. These young conservatives concluded that since those people didn't like something that looked and sounded scientific, they must be anti-science in general. Thus, the race science tautology loop is closed and white supremacy reproduces itself. When race science re-emerged into the mainstream in the 2010s, it had already infiltrated the computer and software industries, whose startups were launched and run by young men who grew up reading those message boards and blogs. They designed programs and algorithms and platforms that automatically did the work of reproducing the old white supremacy ideology, and they bristle and roll their eyes whenever anyone points this out. They consider themselves and their work to be pure, unbiased, and above politics and ideology, just as their predecessors did. And so the pattern continues.